America has a weight problem. We don't have a problem gaining weight, but we sure do seem to have a problem losing weight. Billions of dollars are spent annually in the pursuit of weight loss, often without success. And it is one of the most frequently addressed health concerns of our patients. There are many conflicting messages out there. Today, we will look at facts and fiction related to weight loss interventions. You're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host, and with me today is nurse practitioner Christine Kessler, certified in advanced diabetes management. Hello, Christine. Welcome to ReachMD. Hi there. We know that America's waistline has nearly tripled in the past three decades. In a nutshell, can you explain this to us? I oftentimes say we're not just the greatest country on earth, but the greatest country on girth, and certainly we are. Besides being increasingly inactive in our lifestyles, I think, and it's many, many, many reasons, but I believe a lot of it's related to where we eat, what we eat, and when we eat. Okay, so I'm intrigued by that. The where, the what, the when. Can you briefly elaborate on these for us, Chris? I'd be happy to, and I actually address these with my patients. Where we eat. Well, you can tell over the last couple of decades, uh, we Americans eat out a whole lot more, and we eat a lot when we eat out. And it's not just in fast food restaurants. You know, it's pretty hard to get out of a restaurant, most restaurants these days, without consuming less than 700 calories. And usually we come out with 700 to 2,000 calories or more. Even the salad dressings are notoriously high caloric. And then we look at what we're eating. We're not ingesting just more calories and having larger portion sizes, but the food has been dramatically altered from what we ate before. If you look at the antibiotics, the hormones, the growth inducers that have been added to the livestock feed, well, this has greatly altered our meat supply. And then think about the tremendous genetic engineering that's gone into our fruits and vegetables, as well as what's been added to the food. All those additives, such as flavor enhancers, color enhancers, shelf life extenders. Now, this has led to some DNA changes, some epigenetic and nutrigenomic changes. We are changed down to the cellular level in how we respond to what we consume, and we believe this may have caused some impetus to weight gain as well as food allergies, another big area. And then there's Mm. when we eat, and timing is everything with regards to our food consumption because we metabolize or store our calories based on when we eat. It's different. We have a biorhythm to this. All right. Well, Chris, what is the single best advice you give your patients to help promote weight loss? Well, eat less (laughs) and move more. (laughs) I mean, it's simple, but it's true. And it's also very hard to do. It's not easy for a lot of our patients, but I'll usually give them something simple to start with, like cutting out just 100 calories a day is a start. And that's like a one and a half pieces of bread or two Hershey's Kisses. Or they might want to do a block calorie reduction, like 700 calories a week. And this, we know, can lead to at least 10-pound weight loss over a year's time. We know that we lose weight faster by reducing our caloric intake than by exercise. Exercise does help maintain weight loss, though. Is there one diet that's better than another for weight loss, Chris? We certainly hear enough about different diets. I think if you ask most of the practitioners out there, and probably you yourself, know the answer to this. The best diet is the one you stick with. And this has been proven 
by a great study in 2009. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was by a bunch of researchers at Harvard School of Public Health, and they confirmed with their research what a growing body of weight loss evidence has already suggested, and that is no one diet is better than the next when it comes to weight loss. In fact, it seems to not matter so much where our calories come from just as long as we eat less. It's all about portion control. Yeah, those two chocolate kisses you're talking about? Yeah, sorry. (laughs) You're often quoted as saying timing is everything with regard to eating. What specifically do you mean by that? As I mentioned just briefly before, we do have a biorhythm to how our food is metabolized when we consume it. We are much more efficient in metabolizing the calories that we take in in the morning or early afternoon, like lunchtime. When you eat later or have your larger meals consumed later, this will contribute to weight gain because the calories we consume then are metabolized differently and they actually are stored not into the, what I tell patients, the metabolism bucket, but into the storage bucket. We store energy or calories as fat. So it's best to eat like the Europeans. Eat your supper at lunch. Hard to do with you and I. We grab and go at work, so it's kind of tough. But it's never, here's a tip for you. It's never a good idea to consume your dinner less than three hours before bedtime. And that's something many of us can do. I also advise patients to eat around the plate, the timing and sequencing of food. Eat the proteins and fats, preferably unsaturated. Eat those first. Eat the carbs last. I tell patients, leave the bread alone at the restaurants. Eat it later. Maybe eat a few nuts before because proteins and fats and carbs each send different incretin signals from the gut to the brain. And these affect satiety and energy metabolism. The tip here is protein and fat promote greater satiety and energy metabolism than do carbs. Carbs is quite different. And then slow down when you eat. I suggest patients count to 20 or 25. They don't have to chew. They just count or lay the fork down and then pick it up between bites. This allows time for the gut incretins to be released to promote satiety. And finally, how we drink our beverages. You can drink before or you can drink after, but avoid drinking during the meal because we tend to eat more as we drink. It's a very American thing to do. It's also suggested a warm beverage after you eat may rev metabolism a bit and help you better metabolize the calories. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Christine Kessler, certified in advanced diabetes management. And we're discussing the latest research on the facts and fiction of effective weight loss. So many people cut sugar intake by using artificial sweeteners, Chris. What about the potential health risks associated with artificial sweeteners so much in the news these days? Boy, is this a worry for our weight-conscious patients. You know, saccharin has been around for 100 years. That's our first artificial sweetener, and it was also our first scare because it was associated, you might remember, with uh, bladder cancer, with research that mm-hmm. came out in the 50s, 1950s, but this has actually since been debunked. Even so, there are a lot of associated ailments with some of these artificial sweeteners that can affect those who are very sensitive. Now, there's about 12 different artificial sweeteners out there in industry being used. Overall, all of them can cause some GI upset and bloating and diarrhea. They all can do that, especially the sugar alcohols. But I will give you these few nuggets. If a patient has a sulfa allergy, I ask them to avoid saccharin because it is a sulfa-based 
agent. Those patients who are migraine sufferers should avoid aspartame because it is associated with an increase and can trigger some migraines. One interesting thing about Splendor Sucralose is that it may, and I emphasize may, affect absorption of medications, which I think is interesting. And probably the most common and little-known sweetener, Ascolfame K, which is in just about everything, has been associated with depression. Now, understand this, that all these sugar substitutes, artificial sweeteners, are considered food additives by the FDA, and they are given the grass label. That means generally recognized as safe. Also, I like and I caution providers to understand and my patients that it's not just these additives. There are many other additives in our food. Think about yellow dye number six, which is associated with a lot of allergies, a lot of misery in patients, as well as monosodium gluconate or alginate, which causes a lot of upset to patients, and that is one of my problems. And one more Mm -hmm. thing, because I'm getting a lot of discussion about this, and that is to say something about the recent study linking diet sodas with increased Mm -hmm. stroke. I mean, my daughters, everybody's asking about it, teenagers and patients. Now, this was a study that was presented just recently at the American Stroke Association's International Stroke Conference. This is my take. Poorly designed study. It was never published. It was never peer-reviewed and needs a lot more follow-up research. That was even stated by the researchers themselves. So they used a very poor design. It was sad that this was released as good science and it was shameful of the media to do that. We have to back off and watch and see what falls out. It reminds me, Chris, of what happened with the Women's Health Initiative study information that came out in the media. That is a great point. We jumped the shark, as they say. What about weight gain and artificial sweeteners? There's certainly a fair amount of buzz out there about that, too. Yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting and disturbing claims against artificial sweeteners, and is that they cause this paradoxical weight gain. Now, you know, this has actually been known as a possibility for a long time, but came into prominence with a Purdue study in 2008 with rodents, rats, and mice that were given these artificial sweeteners. But, you know, this concern has been around since the 1970s, and it was associated with saccharine use, and it was in the nurse's health study. But to be fair, just as many studies have refuted this and have found no weight gain associated with these agents. So it seems to be that it's person-specific. We're uncertain why some people will gain weight. What we're looking at is that we know that artificial sweeteners are 10 or 100 to 1,000 times sweeter than sucrose, which is table sugar. And we now know that there are different signals that are sent, chemical signals with taste. And we believe that there's a sweet taste, there's a taste sensors are stimulated, they're triggered, and then it sends out stimulation to the gut hormone, the hunger hormone, ghrelin, and also sends a stick signal to the brain that causes certain people to start craving more sugar and more calorie. But this seems to be very person and DNA specific, so it's very unclear at this time. All I'm going to say is that don't stop using this if you can tolerate them. It's, it's a good alternative for our diabetic patients and weight-conscious patients, but just realize moderation in everything. What about helping patients lose weight in problem areas such as the belly or the butt? Is this a total myth or are there strategies to address these trouble areas? Well, it's a myth. Sorry. (laughs) It seems like we gain weight in certain spots, but when we lose weight, we generally lose subcutaneous fat overall. 
And oftentimes it's lost in inches or notice in inches or millimeters first. We lose inches first before we lose weight. Typically weight loss will occur in the most in the belly, the breast, and the buttock than the face, generally in that order. It is very, very hard to lose thigh fat because that is a benign white fat. It's a, it's a different kind of process. With the greatest weight loss, you can actually reduce not just subcutaneous fat, but deadly visceral fat as well. Why do people gain weight more in their bellies as they get older, Chris? That's certainly a question posed to us as clinicians all the time. Many, many, many different biopeptides and steroids, uh, a lot of hormones, either too many of certain types or too little of the others. In the latter, the reduction of certain hormones, the most prominent one for women, because we do gain that weight around the middle, we become almost like a metabolic syndrome, is estrogen. It plays a big role. We don't understand why. It may be protective because we're gaining visceral fat. We don't know, but we deposit there. What I think is kind of interesting is even before we reach menopause, after the age of 40, that women will have an interesting transformation. About eight ounces of muscle will turn to fat each year. So it's just not around the middle, but just our muscles will change to fat. Another problem as we get older is you have increased insulin resistance, prediabetes, which also will increase central adiposity, both subcutaneous and visceral. And it's unclear why we're wired this way. I keep saying I'm going to have to bring this up with God when I see him someday, but it is strange. We don't know why. Why is belly fat so concerning? It's because it's so associated with the risk of cardiovascular disease. In fact, waist circumference is a greater predictor of cardiovascular risk in the metabolic syndrome. Now, visceral fat, this is a fat that's found primarily in omentum, and that's why people get their bellies come out because they have a lot of omental fat, but also fat in the liver and the heart is very, very bioactive and releases many pro-inflammatory, many pro-thrombotic biopeptides, so clearly pro-cardiovascular risk. Subcutaneous abdominal fat may play a role in actually countering that effect, but the research is ongoing. Any last comments that you'd like to share with our listeners, clinicians and patients alike? One is for maintaining that weight loss, just encourage the exercise. Research shows about 90 minutes a week at the very least can be helpful. For this, walking would be good. And for the best exercise, me and me, is in the morning, about within an hour of waking up. And before they eat their breakfast, go ahead and do that. There seems to be an exercise legacy. And patients who maintain the weight loss usually have breakfast every day and some keep a food diary. There's a lot of things we can do before we go in and do anything over the counter, any pharmacologic or surgical intervention. There's other ways we can do this with timing, what we eat, and where we eat. Thank you so much, Christine. It's been fascinating talking with you and such a pleasure again. Thank you for coming on the show. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and you're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.